Welcome to the Black Writers Studio, a podcast presented by the Hurston Wright Foundation and hosted by Dr. Khadija Ali Coleman. The Black Writers Studio is dedicated to showcasing Black writers who are transforming the world today with their literary pen and creating a legacy for the culture. Dr. Damaris B. Hill is the author of Breath Better Spent, Living Black Girlhood, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland, The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland, and Visible Textures. She is a 2020 NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Literary Work and Poetry and was a Hurston Wright College Award winner in 2003. Similar to her creative process, Dr. Hill's scholarly research is interdisciplinary. Dr. Hill is an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Kentucky. So you look so beautiful today, and it's so great to have you here, Dr. Damaris Hill. <laughs> thank you, Khadija, and thank you for the invite. I'm so oh, happy. Yes, we couldn't, we couldn't begin um, a podcast, um, the Black Writers Studio, without having someone who has such a long history with the Hurston Wright Foundation mm-hmm. and whose work is so significant Um you know, as, as a Black writer, you are significant to us, but also the types of things that you write about. And so I have so many questions around, you know, past work that you've done, you know, mm-hmm. of course, wanting to, to, to dig into this um, profile that you recently did for Baltimore Magazine on our beloved Zora Neale Hurston. But I actually want you to open us up with Um, talking about something that you have on the horizon that's coming very soon and letting us know a little bit about some new work that that we can expect from you. Okay, well, in a few, well, February, I'm sorry, January 25th, (laughs) I will be releasing Breath Better Spent, Living Black Girlhood. And as you can see, it has certain type of sequin on it. Oh, wow. And we're capturing the light and magic and multiple luminosities of black girlhood yes i see all the 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 the, um the hues it looks like it has the different Mm -hmm. hues lots of hues too i love that and so when um when this episode actually launches it'll be february and so this will be on sale for folks to purchase correct yes it will it's available um an ebook and hardback Right now, um, it's cheap. It's available at its cheapest on oh. the Bloomsbury website. Okay, but it's also available at uh, your indie bookstore or your local bookstore. It should be available, and also Amazon and major retailers. Oh, I love it! I love opening up with the details. So we definitely will have will have that information available for folks who are viewing this and they want to purchase this. But tell us a little bit about it. What what was the the catalyst um, for this new project of yours? You've done, you're coming off of, you know, you've done everything from creative, um, from poetry, from creative um, fiction, you, you, you know, you, you've done everything talking about mm-hmm. from the suffragist movements and Jim Crow, you, you know, you've, you have such a, a, a multitude 
of um, interests, of expertise. What led to this and what is it about? Okay, so what led to this is when the pandemic first started. Um, I'm well read and I talk about often Black womanhood, you know, from pre-colonial period to the futures, right? To right, 21st right. century and the futures. But when this pandemic first started, um, I wanted to really like rethink what a black woman's canon looks like. And so I delved deeply into works that I hadn't read deeply when I first became interested in being a writer. Wow. So, um, and that's so much to unpack right there, because then the question is, yeah. why was this because of what was introduced to you through your study? I just don't think I was mature enough. So wow. let's be clear. OK, even though portions of this book on black girlhood in terms of essays were written before and the thoughts have been with me a long time, I was not mature enough for this book. This book grew me. Wow. That that's some vulnerability right there. And, and, you know, at what point do you, do you admit that to yourself? Is that something you always knew or was there like this coming of age, even, even now that you had to go through? Yeah. I don't know if it was always with me, but I do know other stuff was in a way. Mm, Like what? Um, certain baggage I had, whether it be rage, performativity, Mm. um, a reactional relationship with societal pressures and patriarchy, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, a respectability performance. Mm -hmm. All of those things may have been in the way. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was very much born and grew up in the church. Like, let's be clear. I am the person in my family without an MD. I'm the one going to heaven, but I'm taking the scenic route and not the express route. (laughs) My childhood best friend, Reverend Erica Crawford, runs a very large church in Dover, Delaware. Okay. My uncle used to run a seminary at Wilberforce. Um, My dad and my uncle met at Wilberforce, where he also met my mother. Wow. And then when we talk about tradition, you also have a tradition of being a a history of being a service member as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. A history of I am Amy. So a history of ethical and moral based religious servitude. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not always here for the dogma. Mm-hmm. but I'm here for the results. Hmm. So how did, how did that manifest for you? So, I mean, cause what you're saying is a lot and mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, when we even look at the national conversations around religion, very mm-hmm. rarely is there space for, for folks to even have that conversation where I'm, I'm here for the, the results, for the outcomes, you know, it's in the practice of it is individual or, or whatever it is. Absolutely. So the practice of it is very individual. Mm -hmm. I think of, um, Ooh, and this, you know, this might be something that I really need to write about. And I've been thinking about writing about for a long time, but dogma is like the training wheels. Mm -hmm. 
it'll get you on a bike, right? Mm -hmm. But at some point you have to learn to drive that bike and imagine what kind of journey you can go on. Mm. And that may exceed the dogma and the culture of church. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I'm saying. But also one of the greatest benefits, you know, because I'm not to sound too critical of church, is I was exposed to to metaphor and literary interpretation. Right. Right. From the very beginning. Right. So so let's let's dig into to to this book now. So mm-hmm. as we, we're talking about this as this coming to age, really, this ability, this book Mm -hmm. provided space for you to kind of remove all of these things that have been blockades for you to really be authentic. That's what I'm hearing, Um, as authentic as possible. So is there a piece in there that really speaks to this, this becoming of? Yeah. um, So when I was reading some of these classics that may include, I know why the cage bird sings, yeah. their eyes are watching God, dust tracks on the road. Um, I When I was reading their eyes are watching God, it's a point when Janie is burying her second husband. Um, and right after he dies, she runs up to the mirror. And this is the line that like, in, that continuously inspired this book. Mm. years ago she had told her girl self to wait for her in the looking glass wow. perhaps it was time she remembered mm. and so I got goosebumps <laughs> right because right. we don't talk about Zora right in a way where her life was a journey right we talk about Zora and Harriet Tubman and other Black women that we revere um, standing in their power, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But it's time we look at the journeys to which they take to arrive to that power. Because I think that understanding that it is a journey, particularly in this uh, cultural time period where everything is so instant, Right. That that can be um, helpful to individuals that we love in a culture. Right. And it's so interesting that you even characterize it like that, because um, when we even think about Zora, for those of us who know the history around how she really became um, a part of our our current um, consciousness through Alex Mm -hmm. Walker, looking for her and finding her her um, grave site. But even the narrative that we place on her, you know, that she she died poor and we make these assumptions that her life was not fulfilled because we equate these we equate success with these material things or these certain types of outcomes Mm -hmm. as you speak of. But for all we know, you know, she her her life, she could have perceived her life as you say, this journey that she set out to do everything that she Said she and would we do. also don't talk about the obstacles. In A Bound Woman, I talk right. about how she was accepted to two PhD programs, but nobody would fund her. Yeah. So she did the Black woman's work, right, mm-hmm. of challenging academically and research-wise yes. eugenics, medical racism, and patriarchy that um, talked about the white male being the most evolved of creatures, right? Right, right? She did all that hard work to debunk that 
clearly did enough work that she is still impacting the literary community and the anthropological community was accepted to two PhD programs and capitalism wins again. Nobody would pay for it. Exactly. Exactly. Even when we think of Barracoon, just coming out, you know, like decades after her passing and this issue of funding, you're, you're exactly right. So I, I would love to, to, to hear how that, that passage that you read from her, from her work, um, mm-hmm. and you say it in, it influenced this book. Is there a piece that's that's firmly tied to, or was the first piece that you wrote for the book as you began to to gather your pieces? Um, I recall actually watching an interview with you where someone asked about your writing process, mm-hmm. and um, I think you responded with you you throw it <laughs> at the wall, right? But yeah. then, which, which sounds um, so spontaneous and, and possibly chaotic, but then you followed mm-hmm. up with, you have this really, um, th- you are very meticulous with your editing mm-hmm. and with the things, you know, your choices as to what winds up making the final cut. So I would mm-hmm. love to know what made that final cut, you know, with this writing process of yours. So <laughs> <laughs> there are so many ways I can answer that, but, um, Another inspiration for the book, uh, let me be clear, was an exhibit I saw at uh, the Visionary Museum, um, um, the Black Girlhood Museum in um, Philadelphia. They had an exhibit called In Search Of that was talking about Black women that were missing from American culture. So I was thinking about that. I was thinking about all the safety institutional spaces that allow me to access Black girlhood, mm-hmm. like Black Girl Genius Week with Ruth Nicole Brown and Shamara Kwachi and um, the Urban Bushwoman Summer Leadership Institute. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And like um, just being, because, and I don't mean to skip around, but just being in these institutional spaces. But this is the thing. If you want to understand the intellectual dexterity and the magnitude of what we have come to embrace as Black girl genius and Black girl magic, you cannot learn it in one space. Right. Because the obstacles that Zora experienced, all of us experienced those at different degrees. There are gatekeepers that are invested in narratives that are reductive to uh, Black women's intellectual strategy, dexterity, and survival. Right, right. Right? Right. Not all, but just some. Right. And enough of those songs take up enough space that it can make it difficult for multiple voices. Right that affirm Black girls to be available. Right. And so particularly in institutional spaces, higher educational spaces, it is important to seek out these institutions like the Hurst and Wright Foundation, founded by a Black woman. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Marita Golden, that's right. Marita Golden, who Mm -hmm. is a treasure. Yes. Treasures. Yes. And to watch her process of building an institution 
and how to sustain an institution mm-hmm. that is invested in um, anti-patriarchal practices. Right, right. You know how hard it is to work in capitalism and get money and be anti-patriarchal? Right. All right. of these women that are doing it, her, Jawale Zola, mm-hmm. um, Ruth Nicole Brown, um, the Black Girl Museum, uh, Vashai Dubois, Right. All but, of these women. And, and, and look, and then going to start an organization and then mm-hmm. found, found it and then, um, you know, bring other people in like myself to, to work at it and then continuing to do the work as an independent author, but also teaching other people how to hone their craft and be successful. So it, it just, you know, there's no limit to, to, to the things that she has done for our community. But the mm-hmm. fact is, is that she is um, one example of, of just a very few who are pushing back against what you are characterizing as this gatekeeper culture, but that tends to keep us separated. Mm-hmm. where we don't we're not able to share this part of the narrative i always i always think of toni morrison when she talks about you know racism you know keeps you off a, oh and this is not what she said but me paraphrasing is it keeps yeah. you away from doing the work right keeps you from doing the work yeah it's a- exactly that and like while i'm thinking about that i want to be clear to think about like also Puree's Flower Poetry Center and all the work that um, I, I'm, I, you know, that's that church girl coming out of me, but I'm gonna say <laughs> that blessed Elizabeth Alexander is doing right now oh, wow. with the Mellon Foundation. Yeah. Right, like, I mean. <laughs> what What else can I say? Like, Love and light at work, right? How beautifully put. You know, and I I admire these women, most of whom are creative scholars. Deb Willis, also doing it with the Center for for Black Photography, right? Mm -hmm. Creative scholars who can make beautiful art, but says these institutions are also important. Mm -hmm. And... And I am magnificent as Zora is magnificent as Maya was magnificent, and I will do both. It, it's it's. I feel like you're giving um, literary libation right now to to those who walk among us, those who have come before us. Um, and it sounds like, in a way, that this this forthcoming book is is really a, a, an opportunity for you to give libation to those who have come before who are among us but also to the growing your own growing and and becoming self um you know is there if you had to as a writer is there a a, a way that you kind of gauge um when when you've really developed a new skill or a new way of being as a writer that has really emerged or progressed or evolved from where you were before? This is always so hard for me. And I want to um, talk about um, the influence of one of my mentors, uh, Monifa Lovasanti, on my life. Oh, wow. The first time, so much like a singer, 
my literary voice, and this may be true for other literary voices, they change. Mm -hmm. And with this book particularly, my literary voice changed so much. When I was editing this book, I was terrified Mm. of the voice in this book. Terrified. What were you scared of? I had never heard it before. Mm. I didn't know how to contextualize it. I was afraid it was coming from me. Like, who is that? Who is that? Because I did not envision that voice. I didn't know that I could sound like that in a page. And it's so different from what I had sounded like before. Mm. And this is probably my third or fourth time where my voice has changed. But if Monifa Lovasanti did not tell me that it was going to continue to happen, the first time it happened, I, I thought I, I thought I lost my ability to write. I was like, what's, what's going on? Because like any transition, it appears to be chaos. Mm-hmm. Any transition, mm-hmm. any journey, when mm-hmm. you are in the middle, mm-hmm. it appears to be chaos. It appears that all is lost. Mm-hmm. And there is no way to begin again. And there mm-hmm. is no way to end. Mm-hmm. But that is when you are smack in the middle. Yes. And say then, it. Yeah. And that's just <laughs> when your intuition and your faith, you know, and your inner spirit has to lead you. But it's in those moments in my life that I trust my Black girlhood. Because mm-hmm. that, that, that child ain't never lied to me. She has protected me from her inception. And when I am in those spaces of confusion, I ask her advice. Now I know she's a little angry sometimes. She got a little rage with her sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so I gotta, you know, I gotta be like, all right. But I like that though, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. Or wait for my friends to check me. Because I know she's a little peculiar. You know what right, I'm saying? Right, she's right, a little right. different. Right? <laughs> she's a multi-sensory little girl that, that don't understand um why culture is so uh separated from reality like like she don't understand it right right so um (laughs) but that's my friend and and she got my back does she show up in every piece for the oh my god she does oh my god so i'm gonna read i'm gonna read this one piece and i think um what she's doing is she's showing up and I mean, I guess she's twirling around in a dress or dance or something. <laughs> she doing what she do, you know? Beloved weirdo, you are not digging this book about a slave girl and her incidents. These pages read about her early knowing of all things. Meanwhile, you ain't got a stitch of sense. If you did, you would have put that book down and hit that boy asking you if your name is beloved and if you're going to be like Setha and kill the newborn baby he wants to put in you. Is he the weirdo watching in on you and your bestie leaving the woman's clinic? You wish you would have gone wild as the wind on him for prying. Instead, you go deaf and dumb thinking on it. Your mind wanders into a book. 
you think on asking Miss Harriet Jacobs, how does a girl learn to be a slave? Does a snake bite you and leak venom until you fall cripple and spasm, zombie you into a slave? If no, then you got to swallow a butterfly and let it flutter, flutter in your throat, smother your words until you become a slave. Do you let the butterfly kick you way up into your tonsils? This might make your eyes rummage the floor for cracks and force you to be humble. Can a slave be made from a butterfly that avoids windows, avoids light? Does that butterfly become a bat in a, under a girl's collar? Or do you crawl under the hoof of a horse named Andrew Jackson to be a slave? The horse galloping and neighing at your earlobes, dirt in with the blood. To be a slave, you would have to take your ribs and fashion Andrew Jackson's hooves with ivory shoes. Would the overseers use your teeth to tether and hold Andrew Jackson's shoes in like nails in the cradle of your black ringing neck? Do you offer the nag a pedestal and curtsy at the mayor's master? Just curious, not dying enough. And I think that's what the book is about. The book is a kind of origin story about me seeing myself in literature. It's a book about holding on to a spirit of liberation. Even when age, class, gender, nationality, sex, sexuality, even in some of the poems, are pervading you mm-hmm. with norms that are non-reflective. Mm. You are. Wow. It, it, it's it's interesting because in a way, it's kind of of an, an unveiling. Um you know, you've always given the impression of um, this authentic self that was very bearing, even though you did tend to focus in a lot of your work on other women. This mm-hmm. is the first time really it seems that you're focused on yourself. But in, even in that reading, there's so much imagery around the voice speaking up and and letting free um this energy that has been really um, restrained. And I think that in a way that's so revealing and it's unveiling mm-hmm. <laughs> of what has been, you know, happening behind the scenes where folks probably wouldn't even have thought that this was something you were going through. Have you, um, were, b- before this went to, to press, did you have any did you feel that you had to have any, or did you have any conversations with, with family members or anyone who would read this and learn something new about you that they didn't already know about you? I did not. I did not. So um, <laughs> since I was very, again, talking about growing up in the church, I made a decision very early that respectability was not for me, but I did not know that that's what I was choosing. Mm. What I knew is that if I lived up to everybody's expectation, I would be dead very quickly. Um, My father was somewhat a public figure. My mother in relationship to my father was a public figure, but to be clear, my mother's family 
is comprised of a number of public figures in, her, in their own regional space. There was always um, a hyper sense of visibility that surrounded respectability and all kinds of things that come with that, like um, the politics of physical appearance, what femininity looks like, what is the expectation of femininity? Um, and all of that stuff seemed to not really serve me, right? Because it just became, imagine if you were on a carousel a carousel of um, cultural instruction and um, pruning and cultivation, right? Mm. Which is most of what like it can be for a girl from birth, from birth. It is an indoctrination, at least in patriarchal cultures on how to survive a masculinity that may be vicious, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then how to get as much as you can because you don't have access mm -hmm. to cultural standards of masculinity because you right. don't have a penis. Right, right. But then you even, you just said pruning, which mm -hmm. was so significant because that then means this cutting away or this app, you know, something that you have to, to shed or, or have taken from you in order to be socialized into this, right. this, this society. Wow. And not everybody was invested in that. Mm -hmm. um, I would say um, oftentimes my father was not um, invested in all of that. He was a little bit more liberatory with me. But like, be clear, my, my mother went to a boarding school in England. Oh, wow. So, um, and she was a feminist in her own definition. When I, so when I was working on this book last year for at least five months, I got up from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. and wrote this book. Wait a minute, what? Say that again? I don't think yeah. I heard you. Yeah. So I've been trying to get up at four. <laughs> it's two other people in my life that get up at 4 a.m. Monique Lovasanti. <laughs> And Nikki Finney been telling me about 4 a.m. for like 15 years. And I'm uh -huh. like, and so 6 a.m. is easy for me because I'm a military person. 5 a.m. became easier for me. <laughs> um, as of the pandemic, 4 a.m. was it. And um, I did find a reverence for it. As Nikki said, like I would. Right, and he was right. like, this is how you do it. Right. And you're just going to be in it. Right, right. And once, you know, I decided that writing, you know, writing comes first. Mm -hmm. Even if I take a nap in the afternoon, even if I got to go to bed at 830 at night, 4 a.m. to 8, I belong to the work. Oh, wow. So I give the first two hours to reading. And it's usually prescriptive. I try to figure out what I want to edit or what I want to compose that day. Um, a lot of what I read again when I was writing this book was um, Tony K. Bambara, Maya mm. Angelou, and Zora Neale Hurston. Of course, I'm always going through some different Tony Morrison's at all times. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and different poets like um, 
Patricia Smith. I should have been named Jimmy Savannah. What? <laughs> that book is crazy. Like that. That book is crazy. Crazy. So, so when you even say prescriptive, you're reading these pieces. Are, are they kind of like your hype women that are? Definitely, definitely. Oh, they- <laughs> so you know I'm all hip hop. They definitely my hype women. Like I'm thinking about them. I'm like, hey, I'm trying to get in this cipher. I'm trying to be in this cipher. Right. Let, let me see what bars I got. Let me see what bars I got for this cipher. Like it's definitely that kind of of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, this is so. But this is you know very few people. Um, speak about because you you hear all the time to be a great writer you have to be a great reader but very I've I've, I really haven't heard anyone um talk about including that in their writing process and that kind of being this this way because it sounds like it's like your meditation in a sense your church before you dig in you know it definitely is my church but again you want I don't, because of the people that came before me, I have the privilege of even living my life as a writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do not want to disappoint them. That's right. Or the little girl that got me here to right. this point. Right, right. So it was not easy to be authentic in this book. Like I got real, I feel like, and everything, every poem, let's let's be clear, is not a documentary sketch of my life. Right. There are, um, but there's a kernel of my life, I think, in each poem. And there are some places where I exaggerated for the literary motif. And there are some places where things are left out to go down just one particular road, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm or take one particular journey on the page. But like, maybe that's the difference in the voice because I had to become, or I had to relive and revisit that person that looked at the culture that had embraced me, blessed me and nurtured me, like the church culture, right? Was responsible for everything that I had and say, this may not be right. This may not be me. That person showed up for me again and made me interrogate. And the pandemic was the perfect time to do it because as we were grieving so many people who lost their life, it was important to take stock on what was important to you and why. So it was the perfect time to inventory Black girlhood and to stop talking about Black girlhood as a particular time in my youth and talk about how she's with me now. Wow, yeah. So how she's... she's of value you know when we talk about the archetype she's she's that she's forever living i I love that she's on my shoulders like 
forget this head. Right. Look at, look at the girl on my shoulder. Right, right. Had did did you start writing this at the very start of the pandemic, um, in 2020 or last no, year? I, I started writing um other persona poems um again because we also, you know, we're in the twin pandemics of racial injustice. Yes. And of COVID-19. But even prior to our conversations that were formally happening about Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and racial injustice, Black women were being erased and disappeared yes. and victimized without documentation. Yeah. So I was thinking a lot about that. And I'm still continuing to think about what what does patriarchal culture gain by terminating black girlhood mm. before black girlhood can be actualized as black womanhood i'm really thinking about that because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it seems to be happening in a pervasive way that consciously or subconsciously there has to be a reward for them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so as, as we come to, to the end of our, our talk, um, in the black writer's studio, I want to know, um, what is the final takeaway? Is, is there a, t a, a final takeaway that you want folks, um, to have when reading this new piece, this new book? Um, is there, you know, you, you opened up talking about outcomes when we were talking about dogma and that you're not so much concerned, <laughs> right? You, you only concerned Ooh. about outcomes. So, so what are the outcomes? Well, you are a hard interviewer. I don't know <laughs> what the, what the outcomes are for the reader. I know my outcome was when I thought about writing about black girls that have been victim to the pervasive gaze of patriarchal mm. culture. I did not want to reinscribe that back onto black girlhood. Mm. So I really worked with my publisher to try to prevent that. And I really worked on craft to prevent that. That is one of the reasons that all of these poems are in second person mm. so that the reader becomes the subject of the poem rather than another window for you to look in on black girls. Wow. Number two, what I attempted to do. So no peeping toms on your watch, right? Right. Because <laughs> some of these girls in the book are victim to that, right? Right, right. Um, number two, this the first page of this book was supposed to be a mirrored page. My publisher and I agreed on that. We brought copious stacks of mirrored paper. But as they were bonding the book, because the paper had foil on it. It was conducting heat faster than the other pages. And so it was consistently burning and singeing. So we could not get it into the book. I was devastated. Wait a minute, what was I gonna get my hands on um, is that it's really gonna be something that folks who are not black women are going to be reading to get some insight, 
to be able to have something to say or to comment. But what you're saying is that, uh, 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 it ain't that easy. When you read this, you're going to be deconstructing a lot of the things that you come to the table believing about black women, which just That's is it. not so. That's it. Wow. And you won't have to deal with the reflective parts of your own humanity. Yeah. This is wow. not me holding your hand through the journey of black girlhood. That's right. This is you figuring out what black girlhood humanity encompasses and realizing that it may have more plumes than your own humanity. Wow. I like the fact that you um, bring up the fact that we're not just in the midst of a global health pandemic, but this racial pandemic that has been waging for, for centuries, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I, I want to thank you so much for thank coming you, to the Black Writers Studio, sharing I your love it with us. <laughs> um, all at the Hurston, right? All at yes. yes. And let's end again. Let's end as we started with you telling us um, where the book will be available for people to pick up. Black, a breath better spent living black girlhood uh bloomsberry.com also available uh uh at your local bookstore hopefully That's and if right. it's not they'll get it for you can they get um, it on your website on my website you can go to my website damarishill.com yes on my socials um usually all damaris hill underscore bound woman instagram tiktok damaris hill I'm on, I'm on the tick and the talks. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and for the folks watching you, can you just do a little shake? Because you just look so uh, glamorous okay. and fabulous for us. That's right. Let's go here. Love it. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Dr. Hill, Dr. Damaris Hill, your loveliness, your brilliance. I can't wait to get my hands on that book. Um, I didn't get a chance. I didn't get a chance to ask all the questions, but that just means that I have to ask you back um, for a future episode. But thank you. Thank you for listening to the Black Writers Studio podcast, brought to you by the Hurston Wright Foundation. Learn more about Hurston Wright at hurstonwright.org. Thank you.